Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of November 6th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about a crazy weekend in college football with Chuck Culpepper of the Washington Post. The great Charles P. Pierce will join us to talk about the New England Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady, who has turned his life over to pliability, bioceramics, and drinking lots of water enhanced with TB12 electrolytes. Finally, our old friend Greg Wyshynski, who now writes for ESPN, will be here to discuss the Vegas Golden Knights, which is not only an NHL expansion team, but also the most successful NHL expansion team since, checks record book, since the league was formed 100 years ago this month. How have I missed the centennial celebrations in the National Hockey League. I am joined in Washington, D.C. by the editorial director of Slate Magazine. His name is Josh Levine. He is enhanced with JL-13 electrolytes. That's one thing that we don't talk about enough is that just as civilians, we don't get a number that's associated with us. With us. I'll take 13. I dig it. It's what are yours. You? Your SF-48. Uh, I got to go with nine, my, my Broncos number. SF9? Oh, 09. It's a little more dramatic. Oh, All right. SF09. Done. It was just another ho-hum weekend in college football. The annual Bedlam game between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State produced 114 points and 1,446 yards of offense. The Big Ten turned into a big mess with losses by Ohio State in a blowout and Penn State on a field goal at the end of a game that took seven hours, pretty much ended both teams' chances of making the college football playoff thingy. The top two teams in the country, Alabama and Georgia, meanwhile, got by and are on course to meet in the SEC championship game. Chuck Culpepper witnessed Alabama Alabama's 24-10 win over LSU in Tuscaloosa. He writes for the Washington Post. He is with us now. Hey, Chuck. 
Hey, Stefan, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, you noted in your Bama LSU gamer that while all the other top teams were playing crazy games, except for Georgia, for Alabama, form reigns, habit holds, chaos stays away. Alabama wins solidly even when it doesn't play Alabama football. Got to say that other stuff seems way more exciting than the Alabama LSU game. Uh, what was this game like? <laughs> we go to Alabama to witness a human experiment. That's the thing where they're having a human experiment in handling success, you know, in uh, fighting against human nature and its its capacity, its tendency to uh, to sort of luxuriate in success. So that's why we go there. We don't go there to see. Uh, not since I, you know, it's been a while since somebody was Ole Miss went in there in fifteen and one. Uh, we don't go in there to see that. We go in there to see, you know, this this incredible machine that that still, after eight years beyond its first national title in this regime, is still, you know, pounding teams and, may, and maybe even more so. Maybe even is more capable than it was then. So this was the first full Alabama game I saw this year, despite being the biggest SEC fan on this podcast, I think. Um, and I was not at all impressed with this Alabama team. And Chuck, you need to keep in mind that anything to do with LSU football, I'm totally irrational about. But LSU <laughs> LSU outgained them in years past when I've seen LSU lose to Alabama. There just wasn't anything on the field available for them to do. And in this game, there were just receivers running open down the field and Danny Etling, the quarterback, just couldn't connect with them. LSU um, didn't look outmanned in the trenches like everyone said they were going to be. Um, so is that, and I don't actually think LSU is very good. Is that an indication that maybe this Bama team is down this year? Did they just have an off game? What do you think happened? Well, I did go last year in Baton Rouge too also, and it was scoreless after three quarters, if you remember. And you're right, it did look like they could have continued for 20 quarters and LSU would not have scored, in, despite being in front of an audience that was just craving so badly for it to do so and just ready to, you know, ready to let go and never really got the chance to. This one, yeah, you did see those plays. You know, Alabama was allowing 66 rushing yards per game when LSU got to 52 by halftime. You, were kind of, you did see those plays that kind of startled you as a contrast to the past, you know, that they, they were sort of regularly successful football plays, you know, for 300 total yards, you know, not, not bedlam type stuff, but, you know, just plays that, that most teams make. As for Bama, it's so funny about sort of watching them occasionally. Their fans are in that mode that remind me of when I used to live in Kentucky and follow the basketball team. And they can, they can pick any slight pockmark and make, make a big, dramatic issue and, and be afraid of it, you know, is, oh no, what's going to happen? And they do have this problem with, with these injured linebackers. I do think they're going to win the national championship. I, I won't be startled if they don't, but I do think they will. I just think there's so much all, all roster football there, so much capability in so many different ways. Alabama hasn't lost in the regular season since that, that Ole Miss game, right? And, that nutty old Miss game. And you right, are now right. in Athens, Georgia, as we speak. 
Um, can Georgia beat them? You just said you think Alabama will win the national championship. Do you think these teams are of caliber? Can Georgia beat them? Yes. Uh, Georgia's watching Georgia's defense, of course, reminds me of watching Alabama's defense. And there are, you know, very firmly established reasons for that. You know, you have the former defensive coordinator at Alabama now coaching Georgia. So it, it just looks the same. It's so dynamic, so powerful, so athletically capable, all of it. Can Georgia beat Alabama? Yes, I don't expect it to. I like the idea that for in Alabama's sake that uh, they have a quarterback who's who's already been to a national title game and who might not consistently throw the throw like an archer, but who can certainly make plenty of plays to uh, to sort of tip the balance there. Um, I, I'm sticking with my theory that Alabama is kind of secretly not good this year. And they, <laughs> they've played a bad, very, very bad schedule. Um, True. Even within the SEC. And the thing that's really strange about the SEC is every year you see these stats about how, you know, there are 368 SEC players on opening day NFL rosters. And it's just like crazy how many more SEC players are in the NFL than from any other conference. But if you look at the quarterbacks, there are more Pac-12 quarterbacks starting in the NFL than SEC quarterbacks. The five SEC quarterbacks who started the year um, as starting quarterbacks are you know, Jay Cutler, Eli Manning, and Matthew Stafford, who have not been suiting up on SEC football Saturdays for a really long time. Then, right. you, have, then you have Dak Prescott and Cam Newton. Um, I, I don't know, if Chuck, you have a theory about why SEC quarterbacks are so bad? I mean, Alabama lost to Johnny Manziel. They lost to Bo Wallace. Um, they lost to Deshaun Watson. When Alabama plays a good athletic mobile quarterback, they do not look like the in- indomitable defense that we usually see on, on Saturdays. And I, I mean, I'm not going to say that Alabama is overrated or not good, but I would, and maybe we could transition into the Big 12 here. If they played in a conference where the quarterback play was better, I would really be interested to see uh, how they would fare. I would like to know this answer as well, because the, it has gone on for quite a long time on balance. Uh, I remember, again, going back to the 1990s, a moment, maybe early to mid-90s, when there were no SEC quarterbacks on any NFL roster, or at least no starters. It was, you know, but I believe it was none on any roster. And you know, we were, at that time, you were kind of waiting. You were thinking, oh, Peyton Manning is is going to join the NFL soon and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, you mentioned the Pac-12. That has a long-standing edge in the quarterback development area. What has made it so, you know, and of course, as a, as a state, California and quarterbacks have a long, you know, a long legacy there. So, um, but as for what it is that, you know, you, you, you look at uh, even the Alabama quarterbacks of, of these dynastic years and, and they're not lighting up the NFL. Well, A.J. So. McCarron would tell you that he should be starting in the NFL. <laughs> so he got traded, right? Maybe. maybe he not. almost got traded, but right. it hasn't, hasn't quite gone through. Um, so the Bedlam game, that ended up 62 to 52. Um, there is 
something very different. And this is like what one of the reasons why I really like college football is that you do get this kind of regional yeah. variation. That conference, its character, its nature is just entirely different than what you see in the SEC. But even by Big 12 standards, that's a lot of points and a lot of yards. Yeah, and you talk about quarterbacks. I mean, the quarterback for Oklahoma, Baker Mayfield, threw for 598 yards in that game. This is what I like the most about college football, too is the regions and the cultures and and that they're all supposed to play under the same kind of national umbrella now decided in rankings wise by a committee in Texas, you know, as to who ranks where. But I, I look at that Bedlam game and it's funny that sometimes football feels almost in a way like fashion. Like you look at a photo of yourself from the eighties or nineties and you no, you know, and I think now, it's that Bedlam game, I kind of looked at it as, well, you know, there they go again. And I'm not sure I would have enjoyed it any more than seeing, say, Army beat Air Force and never throw a pass all day, as happened on Saturday. So I like it. I like watching two good, good quarterbacks, Rudolph and, and Mayfield, go and, and how precise they are. And we all know how hard that position is. But I can remember not liking watching option football in the 80s. And now... When I see an option well run like Navy's often is, for example, I'm like, ooh, that's really cool to watch, you know. So it's it's kind of cyclic. And I, I didn't look at that game with the 1,446 total yards with quite the same wonder as I would have if this has, had not been going on for 10 years or so already. I was personally excited to see Penn State and Ohio State both lose because it keeps alive my quest to have an undefeated Wisconsin left out of the playoff. I, I don't tweet very much, but I got so angry about how bad Wisconsin's schedule was a couple weeks ago that I just went, I went on a uh, tweet storm. It's just, if you were to concoct a case against divisional play in these big conferences, then Wisconsin would be that exact theoretical so case. Who, who are they playing in the big time? So as of the time I, I, I wrote this, this is no longer the case, but the three undefeated te- teams in the Big Ten then and still, I think, considered the top three teams in the Big Ten today are Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan State. And Wisconsin somehow doesn't play any of them at all. Um, their, their non-conference was Utah State, Florida Atlantic, and BYU, all of whom are bad. Um, their last three road uh, conference games, and we've seen in the in the Big Ten that it's really hard to win on the road in the Big Ten. Their last three road games this year are against Minnesota, Illinois, and Indiana, none of whom had a, a win in the Big Ten. It's just like the theoretically easiest schedule you sh- could possibly have. And the only tough game that they'll have all year is in the Big Ten championship game. And now that the teams from the other division all have two losses, that win will not have the kind of meaning it did. And so undefeated Wisconsin out of the playoff, it's going to happen. I'm psyched. Well, I think we all, everybody seems to really like, I say on balance, what the committee is doing and how the committee thinks about these things and how we used to just blindly take all the, you know, who are the unbeaten teams left? Okay. So they're one, two, three, four, you know, that that's the way we used to do it. The fact so, that Alabama wasn't number one in the first ranking is like totally validates what you're saying. Right. It does. And even while I I did say and will say again that I think they're going to win the national championship, I agreed with that with that choice because Georgia has the better C V 
And, uh, you know, in the past, we used to say, oh, reputation, reputation, you know, and, and factor that in. And it seems like they're factoring it out. So now we have this setting where, all right, suppose Wisconsin plays, say, Michigan State in Indianapolis and wins that and is unbeaten. And, we, and then we have Clemson. Maybe we have Clemson still with one loss and a really impressive set of wins already. And we have Georgia and Alabama, and one of them's going to have one loss. And Oklahoma. And, and then, we, then we have Oklahoma. We also have Notre Dame. And suppose they go down to Miami and win. Then, I mean, Wisconsin at number five, that, that would be loud. That would create a lot of loudness. Oh, there's no question Wisconsin would be behind those one-loss teams. What I'm arguing is they should be behind two-loss teams. (laughs) I don't even – I'm not – that's not funny. Like, they've done absolutely nothing. They deserve to be nowhere. Well, let's see. They they play Michigan at home upcoming, right? So that'll be – so? So? That'll be – at least in the eyes of of many, that will – or if they, if they could win that, people will probably view that the same way people are viewing maybe Alabama's win over LSU, which is, you know, which is a, a kind of a, a step up. A reasonable so, win against an unranked team. <laughs> right, right. Well, that might be ranked by then. They might by then. It's but. true. Chuck Culpepper covers college football and other things for The Washington Post. Chuck, enjoy Athens. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Tom Brady, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk to Greg Wyshynski. We're going to talk to him about the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Sorry, the Vegas Golden Knights um, and a segment uh, upcoming on the show. But in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss him moving to ESPN, a place that hockey fans have not generally been fond of. Talk about him being absorbed by the evil empire. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. You could say that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback in NFL history. You could also say that he is a total weirdo. In one column, the five Super Bowl titles, the two league MVP awards. In the other, the MAGA hat, the never eating a strawberry, the calling Jamie Dimon to tell him to hang in there after J.P. Morgan Chase lost $6 billion. Now let's add to the second column the revelations in Tom Junod and Seth Wickersham's profile of Brady in the current issue of ESPN the magazine, which does not reveal Brady to be a Scientologist or a flat earther, but we might not be far off. Joining us now is one of America's foremost Bradyologists, He is Charles P. Pierce, who, in addition to writing for Esquire and Sports Illustrated, is the author of Moving the Chains, Tom Brady, and the Pursuit of Everything. Hey, Charlie. 
Hey, guys, how are you? Good. Uh, your book on Brady was published in 2006 when Brady was 29. We figured it was the apex of his career. 11 years later, here we are. He is an MVP candidate again. He is talking about playing to 45 years old or beyond. The occasion for the ESPN profile is the publication of a book that someone wrote for Tom Brady titled The TB12 Method, How to Achieve a Lifetime of Peak Performance. There's some weird shit in the story and the book, and I'm not sure the details of the snake oil pseudoscience that he and his quack workout guy are trying to peddle really matter, the pliability and the water consumption and a $200 cookbook. Tom Brady seems like a celebrity whose life gets more bizarre as he gets richer and older. Am I mistaken in that impression, Charlie? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, we are drifting a little bit too close to Gwyneth Paltrow land here. Yeah. I mean, we have the remarkable phrase bioceramic sleepwear. I'm not entirely sure what what's ceramic about bioceramic. Ceramic to me means pottery. Yeah. Um, something to do with infrared radiation and the way this stuff is made. Under Armour sells this stuff. Um, oh, okay. Supposedly reduces inflammation, improves your circulation, makes you smarter, oh, look, if it, healthier. If, if, it, if it does all this stuff, that's great. The rest of it all seems to be fairly straightforward. You should hydrate more, especially if you're a professional athlete. That's understandable. You should you know, get the best kind of sleep you can get. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Uh, I don't know that you have to pay a lot of money for this kind of advice, but... Well, I think that you could argue that this stuff is harmless. On the other side of the ledger, if we're doing the column A, column B thing here, is that Boston Magazine had a great piece about Alex Guerrero, Brady's uh, health guru (laughs) here, who had to settle with the Federal Trade Commission... Yeah. For his involvement in these kind of sham treatments that he claimed could cure terminally ill people, um, this thing yeah, called that Supreme was, I, Greens. I mean, Alex, Alex Guerrero is, is, is a, a dubious character in this drama. Uh, and, I don't deny that. I don't deny that. Uh, you, know, if it, you, know, if it, if, you know, as my grandmother used to say, everybody's entitled to go to hell in their own way. But now, we're, now, we're, now like, as I said, we're starting to edge into Gwyneth Paltrow land here where this is being recommended and sold at a fairly steep price to folks. And the Juno Wickersham piece mentions Brady's reticence when it comes to discussing concussions, that Giselle mentioned one time, you know, that Brady had suffered concussions and he pushed back on that and has never discussed it otherwise. And Guerrero was hawking some like drink that supposedly protected yes, anti, your an, brain anti, an anti-concussion drink yes a, a brain strengthening potion so uh, yeah uh, this, this 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 also smacks of the uh, out of the back of the medicine cart yeah uh so stefan you know you're saying that the details of this don't matter and that it's more interesting just as like a brady celebrity story i actually think that there are going to be people who buy onto this program and the specifics of it and the exact like nature of the quackery actually are worth getting into. And it is important. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that, that, that Brady is uh, recommending here, this, this technique for stretching muscles that he calls pliability. Um, He claims that he can get ahead of brain injury. He believes he won't get sunburned because he drinks gallons of water laced with TB12 electrolytes. Um, 
you know, I, I, I some Doctor Strangelove stuff there, Charlie. Yeah, well, no question. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't know where this turn happened, but it happened, and it, and it, and and you're talking about a guy who's a true believer now. Well, um, and, and that's the question I have for you, Charlie. I mean, I felt this when reading your book. You know, I mean, Brady, he's not, Brady, he's not, he's not, he's not adopting this because he wants to make a lot of money. Right. He's adopting this because he really believes this stuff. Right. And I felt this when reading your when reading your book, and I. And I, and I think this is true for all exceptional athletes. Look, you have to be a bit of a crazy obsessive, not a bit of a, you have to be a crazy obsessive asshole who believes anything that will make you better. Brady has always struck me as sort of just smart enough to be great, but also just naive enough to be great too. He has the ability, like most of these players, these athletes, to not constantly question, to not be consumed by self-doubt, to believe their own bullshit. He'll believe what Tony Robbins is selling, and Tom Brady has appeared with Tony Robbins. Um, but he'll also believe that this stuff really works for him too. Is that is that sort of a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it's very fair assessment, and I, I also I also think that you know, you know, I, I remember the, the the Crash Davis line from Bull Durham. If you think you know, if you think this works, if you think this works for you, it works for you. And you know, I mean, judging from his performance on the field. Whatever this stuff is, is working for him as far as he's concerned. I think it's totally possible that Guerrero is a really good – I'm not saying that this is exactly what's happening, but I think it's possible. This is my theory of the case, is that Guerrero is a good athletic trainer. He's good at, like, stretching Tom Brady out and whatever stuff that trainers normally do. And that all of – because um, Guerrero seems to have done a good job with that, Brady is totally willing to believe everything – that Guerrero says stuff that's like way beyond his expertise, and that's where I think yeah, the I danger think, comes I think in. That's a, I think that's a very fair assessment of it. I do think he's a, he, he probably is a very terrific, you know, masseuse and athletic trainer. And I, I, I mean, it's certainly. I mean, of all the of all the stuff that 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 is being peddled, the pliability stuff actually makes a kind of sense. It that does, it, yeah. You know, that 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 you know, you're more likely. You know, they they say when you're in an automobile accident, if you tense up, you get hurt worse. And that's why drunk drivers survive so so often terrible crashes because they're, you know, essentially a bag of rags before the impact. Right. So I mean, I think if if if, if you're a 40 year old quarterback and you're being and, and you're being you know, you know you're being your your physical regimen is to be more pliable than to bulk up. I think that's probably smart. But then you, he t- seems to take it to the next level, and whether that's Guerrero's right. influence or or Brady's own line of thought is unknown. But in that ESPN story by Juno and Wickersham, Brady talks about. Joe Montana, Steve Young, his idols, being forced to retire because their bodies and brains got hurt. And what Brady outright says is that athletes should take responsibility for their own injuries. It's almost like he believes that he can't get hurt. Injuries happen when our bodies are unable to absorb or disperse the amount of force placed on them, he says. The moment another player's helmet makes contact with my body, my muscles are pliable enough to absorb what's happening instantly. If I were a defensive end or a linebacker and I read that shit, I'd want to see just how pliable Tom Brady is next week. Well, I mean, I think that's also probably fair. Uh, you know, it's not as, I mean, and he has, I mean, it's entirely possible that it's, that that's what's mixed up in here is his, his own desire and his own ability to play through injuries. Yeah, because the year I followed him, he probably had a you know uh, he probably had a, a break in the lower part of his leg for most of the second half of the season mm-hmm. that he told nobody about. You know, he had chronic shoulder problems. He was always on the 
you know, he was always questionable on the injury list every, every week because of, you know, it would say shoulder and people would think it was just Belichick playing games, but it wasn't, I mean, he did, he really did. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, if, if, if he is uniquely capable of playing with injury as even among football players, then it's not that hard for him to convince himself that now he's got this special, you know, regimen of diet and exercise that has made him even more impervious to injury. Juno and Wickersham do a really good job of showing towards the end of the piece that the other folks that Brady has gotten to sign on to his TB12 method have not been so impervious Tendry, Julian Edelman being the leading yeah, I was say, Julian Edelman has proven to be non-pliable in that regard. Complete tear of the ACL in his right yeah. knee after he signed on to this program. <laughs> Stefan, the way you were describing Brady, um, I, I imagined him as being like the side of meat that Rocky is punching. So <laughs> so pliable. He just can, can take a punch uh, all day long. But I guess the, the place to take this conversation next and what the Patriots are clearly thinking about is like Bill Belichick, clearly not a huge fan of Alex Guerrero, has said in his Belichickian terse way, he is not an employee of the Patriots. He works for for Brady. But um, yeah. on some level, it seems like they're buying into this stuff because they trade Jimmy Garoppolo, who at least seems like he has the potential to be a star NFL quarterback and Given that, what else can we conclude but that they're like buying what Tom Brady is selling here about his ability to play in the league for um, a few more years? Well, it, 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 I think it's made a, I think they've made a considered uh, considered judgment that that you know criticizing this sort of thing or even acting dubious about it isn't worth the is a game worth not worth the candle, right? Especially I mean, why, if he's why playing well. Yeah, why mess with you know? Why why mess with you know your franchise quarterback if he thinks you know he's not getting sunburned because he drinks you know TB12 electrolytes? You know why make that an issue? That's just, that's a, and the one thing that you know the one thing that Belichick is 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 a fundamentalist about is keeping nonsense out of the locker room and you know telling the quarterback that you know maybe he's you know bought into some snake oil is a distraction that nobody needs. And, and I wouldn't go too far in assuming that Belichick was making some sort of decision that was anything other than purely rational for his team in the near term. I mean, he recognized that Garoppolo was going to leave at some point. He, you know, I don't think he was being charitable that he felt like Jimmy should get a chance to start in the NFL. I mean, he was basically deciding that we need to get something for him before he leaves. We can get another backup, and that I think Brady will be able to play for another year or two. Yeah, and he also knew Hoyer was going to be available, right. and Hoyer had been here before. So that's—I mean—that's the calculation he would make. I don't have to train this guy up. Uh, he's been here before. He's going to be available. We really just need a backup, uh, you know. Because in the space between when they traded Garoppolo and when they picked up Hoyer, they had no backup quarterback. There was nobody on the roster. Their previous backup to the backup was starting for the Colts. Jacoby Brissett is now walking through that door. Before we wrap this up, uh, I just want to note one uh, additional thing, which is that the crazy sports celebrity diet slash regimen this reminds me of is the Novak Djokovic crazy sports celebrity diet regimen. You might recall that around 2013, he signed on with this guru who the, the thing that got covered the most was that he cut out gluten. But there was like all this stuff about like this special expensive honey that he ate 
And the thing that was cited as an example of how Djokovic got convinced of the the rightness of this regimen was that the dude like held up a piece of bread to his stomach and like, <laughs> right. and pushed his arm down. And that based on that, Djokovic was like, oh, I have a, an allergy to to gluten, which is just like the most laughable, like carny <laughs> bullshit that you could possibly imagine. But here's kind of getting getting to, wrapping up to a point here is that if you like try to Google this now, a lot of the coverage of it is in like men's magazines that like covers this stuff credulously. And Charlie, there's so many examples of people who cover Brady and Alex Guerrero who don't mention any of the snake oil stuff. Yeah, that's that. That's alarming to me. To be perfectly honest with you, I was alarmed when I first heard that he's hook hooked up with this guy, and I didn't know anything about him. But I, you know, I, I distrust. I distrust out of nowhere geniuses who claim that you know everything that everybody's been doing for years is wrong. And then I started hearing about the cancer, the cancer juice, and the, you know, the 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 electrolytes to keep you from getting sunburned. And I still don't understand the strawberry thing. Uh, you know, unless he's got an allergy, I don't get that at all. Well, that's the when did fruit be, when did fruit become unhealthy? <laughs> that's the it has sugar in it. Sugar's bad. But that's the thing that's that's weird is that he says he's never had a strawberry, but we have been led to believe that the like weird diet stuff is only was it like for different reasons? Like the first twenty nine years of his life, he didn't have a strawberry just because he didn't get around to it. Yeah, well, I mean, well, for the first for the first you know eighteen years of my life, I didn't eat eggs because I didn't think I liked them, and then it turned out I did. So. <laughs> What a way to end, right, Stefan? Yeah. I think the lesson here, though, is that when you have a lot of time on your hands and a lot of money, you're going to do some crazy shit. I was going to say, rich people have strange. Rich people are different than, than you and I. They all have strange habits. The Charlie Pierce used to think he didn't like eggs edition. That's the title. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Pierce. Now, mind you, I made that, mind you, I made that decision on my own without ever having had one. You were not the most rational child. I don't, think, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think my brain was very pliable back then. Charlie Pierce is pliable now. He writes for Esquire and Sports Illustrated. He's the author of Moving the Chains, Tom Brady, and the Pursuit of Everything. Charlie, thanks, man. Thanks, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Among the many questions that I have for our next guest, Greg Wyshynski, late of Yahoo's Puck Daddy, now of ESPN, is why the Vegas Golden Knights didn't include the loss in their name. Josh may have other questions, including how the NHL expansion team started the season with eight wins in its first nine games and nine in its first 13, which I read ties the Montreal Canadiens of the inaugural four-team NHL in 1917 for fastest to nine wins by an expansion team, which sure seems like a meaningless statistics, but whatever. Greg Wyshynski, it is great to have you back on the show. Hey, man. It's a pleasure to be here uh, on the show. Many, many things to discuss, Greg. Vegas, Las Vegas, the fact that there's now a pro team in Las Vegas. But let's start with some hockey. Expansion teams aren't supposed to be good because they're not supposed to be given access to good players. What was different about this expansion draft and the way the Golden Knights drafted from it? 
Well, there you go. I mean, you know, the the word expansion team, the, the the phrase expansion team has been a pejorative in the NHL for many years, uh, usually because the team is constructed from castoffs and and uh, just you know the the dregs of each franchise. But the way that the NHL structured the expansion draft for Vegas, and and I think it's partly because they wanted a a, a team that was going to be competitive in that market since it's an, an emerging market as quickly as possible and. Also, because Bill Foley, their owner, was nice enough to ante up $500 million for the franchise. The, the way the expansion draft was run this year basically gave the Golden Knights, you know, the fourth best defenseman from every team, uh, a, a plethora of, of, of decent goaltenders, including Mark Andre Fleury from the Pittsburgh Penguins. And in guys like David Perron and James Neal, uh, offensive players that were definitely a bit more accomplished than the fourth liners that teams like the Ottawa Senators and Atlanta Thrashers. Uh, tried to make into top liners. So you're seeing a team that's got overall a better depth of talent. Uh, You combine that with a pretty decent coach in Gerard Gallant and the ability to have seven straight home games in October to kind of find your confidence and your footing. And it's why the Vegas Golden Knights are one of the most surprising success stories in the NHL so far. Is there any resentment around the league, either from fans or from other franchises, that they've been given this roster that's allowed them to compete right out of the gate without them seemingly having to do much of anything as far as team building goes? I don't think there's that much resentment of the Knights quite yet because I think the the prevailing thought in the NHL amongst fans, pundits, and other teams is that eventually they're going to regress to the mean and not be a team in playoff contention. Uh, maybe because we all assume that should be the plan anyway in year one for them. But I think there was some resentment back in, in June when these these rules were announced in, in the fact that you had teams that not only knew that they were going to lose quality players, but then also had to kind of make arrangements to ensure that if they did expose players, they weren't going to be selected. And, you know, little side deals here and there with Vegas and that kind of thing, too. So, um, yeah, it was it wasn't something that these teams were thrilled about, but I think Everybody in the league knows that, you know, when you're dealing with a market like Las Vegas, uh, a large season ticket base there that doesn't involve corporate uh, backing, uh, but also a, a market that's going to soon have the the Raiders sucking all the air out of the room. Mm-hmm. It's important to get off the blocks as, as best as they could and have a competitive product on the ice as, as quickly as possible. They were happy to share the $500 million expansion yeah, fee, that too. presumably. Uh, that that as well, <laughs> and when you and when you ante up that much money, uh, you know it's it's gonna you know it, grease the, grease the gears as it were to yeah. try to get your uh, your team a better a better lot in life. Yeah, yeah. I will say this about Bill Foley, the owner, though. I mean, he's been pretty adamant about it being a three-year plan of the playoffs and a five-year plan to try to win a cup. He's a very confident and bold man. One of these guys that you can feel the gravitas coming off of him when you meet him in person. I do wonder what the Knights will do if if this is an aberration, if the points that they've banked in October lead them to being potentially on the playoff bubble come trade deadline time. Do they stick to the plan and try to flip guys like James Neal for for draft picks and future considerations? Uh, Or is the, you know, tantalizing draw of of being a playoff team in your first year going to be too much where they actually kind of keep this team together versus trying to, traded off for the uh, the three-year plan. But why, why would you not try to make the playoffs and make a run? I mean, uh, 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 how did they stock a, you know, a minor league team? Where are they going to get replacement players from? So I mean, it seems to me that, hey, it's the NHL. There's, what, 31 teams now? 
if you can be one of the 16 that makes the playoffs, it's more revenue, more fan dates, and uh, you know how much are you really sacrificing here? You built the team from scratch that's already playoff worthy. Well, you certainly shoot your shot, right? I mean, if you get a chance at the playoffs, there's a few teams that would not take that chance, except for when you're in year one of what is a multi-year process to try to build a champion. And I mean, the bottom line is that if the Knights get into the playoffs, I mean, who knows anything can happen, but chances are they're not going to win the cup, but they could win the cup if they take a guy like James Neal, who could be a 30 goal scorer for them this season and turn him into a first round pick at the trade deadline because somebody needs a scoring winger. Um, there's a long game to be considered here. And when you look around at the league and, uh, and, and see how these championship teams are built, uh, it's through the draft and it's through young players. And, and the benefit of that in the NHL, of course, is you're basically chained to your franchise until you're about 27 years old due to the restricted free agency rules. So there's something to be said for that, too. Keeping costs down with younger guys and building towards a championship versus maybe hanging on to older players a little bit too long because you have a, a shot at the playoffs. So it seems like they've leaned into this whole Vegas thing, <laughs> just like reading a description of the Opening night, you had some Cirque du Soleil on ice action. Blue Man Group was present. I guess the thing that was really unexpected was the close proximity to the mass shooting in Las Vegas and how that kind of added a solemnity that you don't generally associate with events in Las Vegas. You were there. What was it like? And what's your sense of like what it means to be a hockey franchise in Las Vegas? It was it was a surreal night because you're right. I mean, there was this this fanfare for the first official regular season game, um, and there were these sort of kitschy Vegas elements that you had here and there, like a a giant light up drum line where the guys looked like they were you know from Tron uh, playing in front of a, a large facade of a castle on the side of the rink, and you know all this other stuff going but at the same time it's also a, a night where they're honoring the memory of of dozens upon dozens of people that perished uh within close proximity of the arena so it's it was a a real surreal night i thought that the the nights bounced it as well as as could be expected um but the kitschy stuff is going to be the thing that that people come away with from from these games i mean first of all the arena is beautiful it's got amazing sight lines great place to watch a game a lot of stuff going on outside the arena of restaurants bars and of course, the Monte Carlo Casino, which is a three-minute walk from the opening gates of the arena to go place your, your bet on the game that night. Um, but, you know, like they have a whole thing where like they're having players pull a sword out of a stone. Uh, they've changed the, the lyrics to Sweet Caroline to Sweet Golden Nights. Like there is enough Ugh. Vegas cheese there for your, uh, for your crackers, uh, which is exactly what I kind of wanted out of a franchise in Vegas. Do you get the sense that they are going to be able to market to people who are passing through town as opposed to local residents? And what is the, the marketing strategy for the franchise going forward? Well, there is a, a long storied history in the NHL of teams in non-traditional markets sure. making their pitch to visiting fans. The Florida Panthers basically would send ticket offers to Canada uh, for people to come and see their favorite teams when they were in Sunrise. Same thing with the Arizona Coyotes. I mean, the Coyotes would basically tell people in Edmonton it's cheaper for you to come fly down here and buy a ticket to this game than see the Oilers in your own town. Uh, Vegas is an interesting one because I'm not sure how much they have to pitch it to people that are that are coming through. I think they see themselves as part of the overall entertainment package now. So if you're a dude from Boston and, uh, and you're thinking about going to Vegas, maybe you're now planning your trip around the Bruins being in town so you can go catch a game with them and then, and then you know, do the rest of the Vegas thing around it. So 
I don't think they have to pitch it. I think it's going to happen naturally. And that's what, that's why I think ultimately they succeed is that it's unlike any other non-traditional market in, in sunny environments that the NHL has had in that there's going to be a constant stream of people coming through that city that are going to be interested in catching an NHL game at a, at a, at a decent price and in, a, in a, a beautiful building. Makes more sense than the Raiders, I think, at least to me. Just, you know, when you just mentioned that idea of I don't know how many different cities that, that pitch will work for, but I could totally imagine somebody from the East Coast or wherever right. making a trip to Vegas around the hockey game. Or, and I would imagine Or that, I'm planning my trip to Vegas and it's do I go to the Celine Dion concert or do I go see a hockey game? Right. Or or you're inside of a building with ice versus sitting outside in ninety eight degree heat in September to watch the Raiders. That's also a difference. <laughs> Good point. But I can imagine that the ownership of the team and the front office will make a huge push to get as many games there over the weekend as they can. I'm sure every franchise is doing that, but that could make a huge difference around whether people from out of town are going to be going to these games in large numbers. Sure. And I remember talking to some people uh, last year when I was reporting on on the on Vegas, you know, first getting the expansion franchise. And one of the interesting conundrums for people is that, look, a lot of the, of the folks that are shelling out money uh, to to be the first in the first slate of season ticket holders. There's a lot of them that live outside town, but there's a lot of them that live and work on the strip, you know. And so that's a that's those hours are not exactly the friendliest when it comes to getting time off to come see a, a hockey game. And uh, you know when when the entertainment industry is so prevalent in that town, you have a lot of people that work in it. Uh, there was some talk about how do you possibly schedule these games to ensure that the maximum number of people that are local can come see them as well um but it's you know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting experiment i guess in the eyes of a lot of people in the nhl um but ultimately i think it's going to be a successful one i i really think they've got strong ownership they've got a good vision and the way that they've been been embraced by that community is is been incredible so far to be able to sell as many season tickets i think it was upwards of twelve thousand without opening it up to the corporate entities uh, was was remarkable and and one of the driving forces in convincing some of the skeptics and the board of governors that that's, that this team should exist. All right, before you go, Greg, why no loss in Las Vegas? <laughs> the owner Bill Foley wanted to name this team the Knights uh, more than anything, and uh, then when it became apparent that they couldn't just be the Knights, they had to put an adjective in front of it, uh, so they became the Golden Knights. Wait, why uh, did that to- become apparent? It just came to him in a vision. Uh, he's an ex-military guy, um, so he's long wanted to name his team the Knights after the Army. Uh, and also, uh, the NHL had a mandate that said that they didn't want any gambling references in the team names. They couldn't name them like the Vegas Blackjack. So the combination of those two things led to it being called the Knights. They quickly found out that Black Knights and other forms of that were off-limits, uh, and so they decided if they were going to go with a, uh, a two-name team like Golden Knights, that Las Vegas would make it a little bit too wordy. So they went with Vegas uh, Golden Knights, which I kind of like, too, because it, it helps you find them in the scroll of teams on NHL.com. You just go all the way down to where Winnipeg and Van- Vancouver are, yeah. Yeah, VGK on, uh, on, your, on your, your, your company's homepage and in other, other places. That's kind of weird, VGK. It, it's, it's awkward. I'll give you that. But uh, there'll be a sense of normalcy at some point about it, I'm sure. Greg Wyshynski writes about ice hockey 
for ESPN. He's also the co-host of the podcast Puck Soup. Greg, thanks for coming on the show, man. Anytime. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And now it is time for After Balls. Let's stick with Vegas. There were other candidates for the uh, Golden Knights nickname. I would like to hear this. They were... Silver Knights, Desert Knights, and Golden Knights. Those were the three finalists. And that's because the owner of the team, Bill what about Foley, British Knights? went to, uh, went to uh, what about Talladega Knights? Went to West Point, graduated from West Point. So he has a thing. Dirty Dancing Havana Knights. For the Knights. <laughs> but the newspaper ran a contest in Las Vegas before uh, the owner decided oh, that wait, it would be Knights. I got one. Knights what? in white satin. That's a good one. <laughs> Just think of all the marketing opportunities. The finalists for the newspaper vote included Aces, Scorpions, Outlaws, Bighorns, Rat Pack, Sin, Dealers. There's a lot of obvious Las Vegas potential nicknames. I think Rat Pack is kind of good. Yeah, let's do that. Want to do Rat Pack? Yeah. All right. Josh, what's your Rat Pack? I did a team nickname history deal myself. It's what we call Synergy, mm-hmm. Kismet. Um, so the Houston Astros won the World Series, and we didn't talk about it this week because it happened a while ago. But we remember. Good job, Astros. Congratulations on winning the World Series. The Houston Astros, though, were not always the Houston Astros. Um, between 1962, when they joined the National League. Oh, they're not in the National League? When they joined the National League, they're no longer in the National League. Never won a World Series in the National League. Failure. They were the Houston Colt 45s. They accrued a win-loss record of 196 and 288. Never had a winning season as the Houston Colt 45s. And then they embraced the space age, moved into the Astrodome, became the Houston Astros. But there was a newspaper contest, as there always is, to choose the name um, Judge Roy Hoffines and his Houston Sports Association when they bought the team, um, they had bought the rights to a franchise which had the territory. The Houston Buffs were a minor league team, and they decided we're not going to keep the Houston Buffs nickname. They opened it up. They got 12,000 entries. Um, this is all from a quite comprehensive piece on the website Astros Talk. Um, they got entries from 39 states, Stefan, as well as Canada, England, France, Spain, and the Turkey. of Colombia? And Turkey. Um, I like this detail. Two students from the University of Houston spent an estimated 150 hours sorting through entry names and eventually narrowing them to around 75 choices. Um, The fan favorite, the top pick was Rebels, which they didn't go with. I don't know if it was due to um, just the knowledge and understanding that Civil War iconography was just not really something that uh, we embrace in the United States or of America. They, they wouldn't want to be part of that conversation, you know, 57 years later. Very prescient of them. So 
Um, the short list as of March 61 was Generals, Hawks, Longhorns, Ravens. I was kind of surprised that Ravens mm-hmm. was on there. Spurs and Stars. Then it went, uh, and also Colts. Then it went down to Colts, Spurs, and Ravens. Now, there was a salesman named William Nader. And can who, I interrupt you? Was it Colts or Colt 45s? It was Colts. It's just Colts. So there was a salesman. William Nader, who when, you know, I guess on these entry forms, you were asked why you chose a particular nickname. And out of the people who picked Colts, he was the only one who focused on the uh, gun connotation. The Colts 45 won the West and will win the National League. Half, at least half accurate. So um, that was the name that got picked. And when asked why he had gone that way. Nader said, I thought Colt was a good name, but then I saw the Colt 45 and I thought, well, you know, Colt 45s would be even better than playing Colts because there'd probably be about four or 500 people entering that name. So I entered the name Colt 45 as the gun rather than as the horse. And as the tiebreaker, I put the Colt 45 as the gun that won the West and could win the National League. It's the only contest I ever entered in my life, the first one and the last one. He won an all-expenses-paid round trip to the World Series. Good for that guy. So... My favorite, so just as they kind of went all in on Astros, they embraced the whole like West gun dealio as well. They trained at Apache Junction for spring, for first spring training in 1962. Then my favorite was they did before, I guess they had figured out that it was going to, that they were going to be the Astros. They were breaking ground for what was then known as Major League Baseball's first all-weather stadium. For their groundbreaking, they just shot the ground with Colt 45 guns. Instead of a shovel? Instead of a shovel, yes. So this is according to the AP. Excavation work got underway at the site of the $22 million dome-covered stadium. The job of digging a hole 24 feet deep and 700 feet in diameter will take about four months. But how best to dig a hole? You shoot guns. Paul Richards, the general manager, shot. County judge Bill Elliott, he got in there with a Colt 45, the president of the Houston Sports Association. You got some uh, Houston uh, city councilmen, some Harris County commissioners. They're all shooting guns at the ground. Good for them. So eventually, uh, 1965, they changed the name. But then you got to have throwback Jersey Day. Fast forward to 2010, Paul Lucas of UniWatch was noting uh, throwback uniform uh, day in Houston and his outrage at what had taken place. They're removing the smoking handgun. Ugh. Whatever your thoughts about the Second Amendment, this is a design disaster. Don't want to take a cheap shot at uh, Paul Lucas many years later in the wake of a mass shooting in Texas where more than 20 people were killed. Um, But Common sense gun laws, common common sense jersey design, design, uh, having the gun on the uh, Colt forty fives uniform. What do you think? We'll probably pick a different throwback uniform. Yeah, wear. yeah. Maybe that would maybe when the Astros celebrate their uh, World Series title next year, they will not be flashing back to their. Glory days as the Colt 45s for multiple reasons. Stefan, what is your Rat Pack? 
Here in America, the bar for a coach rant about fans is impossibly high. The standard was set back on April 29th, 1983, when Chicago Cubs manager Lee Elia went batshit in the locker room about the lack of support among the Wrigley Field faithful after the team's record fell to 5-14 and 14 in the young season. The unbroken three-minute-long tirade is best heard in full, but here's how it starts. I'll tell you one fucking thing. I hope we get fucking hotter than shit just to stuff it up them 3,000 fucking people that show up every fucking day. Because if they're the real Chicago fucking fans, they can kiss my fucking ass right downtown and print it. They're really, really behind you around here. My fucking ass. I could absolutely listen to Lee fucking Elia lose his motherfucking mind on a fucking loop. So we'll play a little bit more later. But I was reminded of Elia when a friend emailed me a story about Mick McCarthy last week. McCarthy manages Ipswich Town in the second tier of English soccer. He's an Irishman who had a long playing career for Manchester City, Celtic, Lyon. He coached Ireland to the knockout stage of the 2002 World Cup, and he's managed Millwall, Sunderland, Wolverhampton, and since 2012, Ipswich Town. Judging by various encounters over his career, it is not clear that McCarthy ever had any fucks to give, but if he did, it's clear he has none left, especially since fans have begun to turn on him after a 16th place finish last season. In August, after a 1-1 draw with rival Norwich City, McCarthy went off. I get sick to death. We play one bad half and we're all shit and we can't play. The manager doesn't care. Get somebody who cares. I'm a boring C dash dash dash. Somebody called me last week. I wish they would call it to my face on my own because his pint of lager, he would have been wearing it. It's not clear which C word McCarthy said he was called. I will leave that to your imagination. In any case, that was a warm up for what happened two Saturdays ago in another championship league match against Burton Albion. Fans were chanting for McCarthy to put in Bersant Chalina, a Kosovan on loan from Manchester City. Fans chanted, you don't know what you're doing. Mick McCarthy, your football is shit. And Mick McCarthy, get out of our club. Chalina is a young and fast player and McCarthy prefers what the website Who Ate All the Pies called an agricultural style of football. McCarthy did finally put the player in and he scored a last minute game winner. After the match, McCarthy said that the substitution had nothing to do with the fans whose opinion he apparently does not value. Alas, I could not find audio of McCarthy's interview with the East Anglian Daily Times, but here are some of the choice lines. I don't give a shite about that, by the way, McCarthy said of the chanting. He didn't go on because of that. Let me just clear that up. In fact, there's more chance of him not going on when they start telling me what to do. And yes, I am a belligerent fuck. Let's just clear that up. Chalina apparently himself is ready to return to Manchester City. He recently tweeted two months till the new year. McCarthy responded to that by saying in this interview, it's factually correct, isn't it? He's a fucking brighter lad than I thought. When the reporter told McCarthy that negativity among fans had, quote, crept back in, McCarthy replied, they crept back in, did they? You're kidding me. I think they more than crept back in. Listen, unless somebody decides otherwise, you've got me boring old big nose fucking fart with shite football until May, unless somebody decides different. Pretty good stuff. 
enough that a local columnist tut-tutted that McCarthy's comments were classless, showed contempt for the people who pay his wages, and were ill-judged, ill-timed, and unnecessarily divisive. But they were not this. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Go out there and let my fucking players get destroyed every day and be quiet about it for the fucking nickel-dime people to show up? The motherfuckers don't even work. That's why they're out at the fucking game. They want to go out and get a fucking job and find out what it's like to go out there and earn a fucking living. 85% of the fucking world's working. The other 15 come out here. 85% of the fucking world's working. The other 15 come out here. That's how it's done, Mick McCarthy. Step up your game, man. That is our show for today. And Stefan did all the hard work, but I'm going to bring us home. Bring our us producer home, is Patrick Fort. Tools and past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out The Good Fight, a biweekly podcast in which Yasha Monk speaks to academics, journalists, and politicians searching for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populism. You can find The Good Fight on Slate or in iTunes or wherever else you locate fine podcast products. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.